Searching for it. As those of you who listened to the last episode will know, this episode's supposed to be the second half of what's essentially a two part series on altruism. So, in the last episode, we looked at the question why should we be altruistic in the first place? Or, in other words, why should we be concerned about helping other people? Whereas today, we're going to be looking at the more practical side of the question how can we go about making the world a better place the most effectively? It might sound like a fairly straightforward question, but relative to the previous episodes of this podcast, This episode today is probably going to be a bit heavier on the technical side, because I think the more seriously you take this question, how to make the greatest difference to the world, the more you realise that our everyday assumptions about how to do good effectively actually leave out a lot of really important stuff. I think there's actually a heck of a lot going on that you might not expect. But to briefly recap where we got to in the last episode, we looked at Peter Singer's arguments to the effect that we really should be doing a lot more than we currently are, to make a positive difference to the world, in particular towards those who are suffering in poverty. And personally, when I came across Peter Singer's argument myself for the first time at university, I found them so compelling that I actually found them pretty troubling. There was a period of a few weeks where I was really mentally wrestling with myself. I'm not someone who's particularly interested in money and buying lavish things and that kind of thing. But even still, there are some things that I really wanted to save for. Going on a long-term backpacking trip was a big thought for me at the time but I felt that I couldn't justify it to myself in the knowledge that there were millions of people who could benefit far more from my money than I could myself. I found myself getting into this thought loop, thinking that for every few thousand pounds I earn a year, above what I kind of minimally need to get by, if I chose not to give that to effective charities, I'd be essentially taking the money out of the hands of those who need it far more than me. People would literally be dying that I could have saved if I were less selfish. For reasons we'll come on to later today, I don't think that thought pattern is very healthy, and in actual fact, I don't even think it's very conducive to our actually going out and doing good. But for those of you listening to today's episode, no matter how much or how little you're concerned with things like giving to charity, and no matter what your personal reasons might be for wanting to help people, and where those reasons might come from, I hope that today's episode will offer some useful guidance as to how you can do whatever bit you can to make the world a better place. Or at the very least, even if you choose not to act on it. I do personally find the thoughts from the people we'll be looking at today really interesting, even if just from a kind of intellectual perspective. Now, obviously, the question how to do the most good is really broad, and there are loads of ways you can go about answering it. I mean, there are literally entire podcasts dedicated to answering this question. But the angle we're going to be coming from today is from the perspective of something called effective altruism. So, start off with the very basics. What exactly is effective altruism? Well, effective altruism, it's, I think, essentially a movement or a community of people who call themselves effective altruists. It might sound a little pretentious, but there's something specific that they all stand for. These effective altruists, or EAs as they're often known within the community, are people who, broadly, well, they're altruists, meaning that they're committed to making the world a better place, and they try to be effective in doing so, meaning that they want to make the greatest possible difference that they can. They come from a load of different backgrounds from all over the world, from different religions too. But what they ultimately stand for is making the world a better place, but actually being thoughtful and deliberate in how they do so, and looking for the opportunities with which they can actually make a really big difference. At its core, I think it's a pretty obvious idea really, trying to do good, trying to do the most good you can. But effective altruism as a movement in itself hasn't actually been around for too long. 
It was around about the late 2000s on internet forums and philosophy departments that these guys began to formalise their thoughts and eventually became a movement which today has over 100 groups across five continents. And they've got some pretty influential people on board too. Liv Beret, the poker player, was actually given a talk at an EA conference I went to last year. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was there the year before that. And one of the Facebook co-founders, Dustin Moskovitz, has actually set up his own EA organisation which is tasked with giving away his money to effective causes. But to be an effective altruist, you don't need to get a membership, it's not a club or anything like that. As I say, it's more of a movement or a community of people who share the same kind of ideals. But in recording an episode on essentially the best ways of being a good person, there's a reason I want to focus on effective altruism in particular, and the reason is if we genuinely want to make the world a better place, I think it's really important to be careful what kinds of causes we support and how we go about supporting them. I know this obsession with effectiveness might be a bit alien to a lot of people. I mean, I know, when you organise a charity bake sale or pop a few coins in a local charity collection jar, the first thought in your head probably isn't going to be, what benefit are these people going to get from my donation? How many people will I benefit? How much happiness am I generating with each pound I give? And how does this compare with Oxfam? You'd probably think that somebody was utterly neurotic if they went down that thought pattern every time they gave a few pounds. But in actual fact... The further you follow the rabbit hole of cost-effectiveness, the more you come to realise that there are extraordinary differences between the most and least cost-effective causes you can support. There's a great little example that I think really hammers home this point from an Oxford University professor called Toby Ord. In a paper, he asks the reader to imagine a pretty plausible scenario. You've got a bit of money lying around you want to give to charity, and for whatever reason, you settle on the idea of giving to a charity that helps blind people. So, great. Now you've just got to find the right charity. So you do a bit of research and you find a charity in your local area that provides guide dogs to blind people. And I'm sure, no doubt, that these guide dogs make an amazing improvement to their owner's quality of life. So you give your money and you think, nice, job well done, I've done my bit. But where we failed here for Toby Ord is in failing to do our due diligence. If we'd looked a bit further afield, we'd see that in the developing world, the opportunities to help blind people are far, far greater than they are here. And you only really notice this when you look closer into the cost-effectiveness. So, Ord points out in this paper that in the United States, you could expect the cost of training and providing a single guide dog to be around the $40,000 mark. That's why charities step in to provide them, because they're pretty expensive to buy yourself. Whereas in Africa, to compare, there are charities operating who provide surgery to people suffering from this disease called trachoma. And by providing surgery, they're actually able to restore sight to the victims when they would have otherwise been permanently blinded. So you've got guide dogs on the one hand, and you've got surgery on the other. But the differences between the two charities is really highlighted when you consider the cost of the surgery, Ord estimates it to be costing around $20 per person. So to be crystal clear here, for the cost of training and providing a single guide dog, which it's worth bearing in mind won't restore sight, it'll just make living with blindness more manageable, you could literally cure 2,000 people of blindness in the developing world completely restoring their sight for the same cost. And it's not just in terms of blindness that these kind of comparisons crop up. Ord also estimates in this same paper that the most effective interventions to prevent HIV and AIDS in the developing world are around 1,000 times more effective than the least effective, meaning that the most effective interventions can prevent 1,000 people from getting HIV or AIDS for each one person treated by the least effective charities. I think in light of these differences between charities, if you have any interest in giving money to charity, 
it's important to ask yourself first, am I giving money to charity to make myself feel good, to get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, or am I doing so in order to actually help people? I mean, if it's just the former, if it's just about that fuzzy feeling, then I guess by all means you can give to any cause because it all does the same thing for you anyway. But if you're genuinely concerned with helping people and making a positive difference, at least in my opinion, it's absolutely vital that you look carefully into where you're giving your money. Because learning to prioritise our donations is what can make the difference of many, many more lives being saved or improved. And that's why, relating it back to the theme of this episode, that's why effective altruists commit themselves to researching the most cost-effective causes, because they want to be sure that they're doing as much good as they possibly can. So if you're still with me at this point, I want us to take a look at how EAs, effective altruists, actually go about doing this. How will they determine which causes are most worthy of their attention and which causes these are? So if you want to give to a charity that will make the world a better place, the first place to start is to decide, well, what cause do I want to support? It's all very well saying I want to do good, but what does that good look like? Do you maybe want to make sure that the homeless people have enough to eat? You might think the environment is one of the most pressing issues, or maybe you might think that there are certain diseases in the developing world that really need your attention. How can you even begin trying to decide which specific charity you want to support before you even have any idea about what general causes you think are the most important? This question's what the EAs call the cause prioritisation question. The question of which causes we prioritise out of the infinite causes out there. Now, at first glance, this might sound like an impossible question to answer. As part of my last job, I was part of our company's local charity committee. So we'd get applications in from loads of different local charities, and we had to decide which ones we wanted to support. And this difficulty became really apparent in some of those meetings. We were having awkward conversations about, should we give to this charity and train 50 youth workers? Or to this charity and provide physiotherapy to five disabled people? Or should we fund a defibrillator? I mean, how do we even begin to go about trying to make those kinds of comparisons? Well, effective altruists have spent a lot of time thinking about that question. And one of the most popular things they've come up with is a kind of test that they think shows whether or not a cause is likely to be worth focusing on. So this test, that they call the ITN framework, basically scores causes against three specific criteria, importance, tractability and neglectedness. Now, this might sound pretty technical, but it really is a pretty simple idea in practice. So we'll take a couple of examples, let's take climate change. Now obviously if we start with the importance factor, the first one of the three, then climate change passes this with flying colours. Everyone knows that climate change is reaching crisis point, and it could be absolutely imperative to our survival as a civilization that we act upon it. So definitely it's an important cause to be focusing on. The next factor in the ITN framework, tractability. For those of you who don't know the word, it basically means how much scope is there to do something about this? Is it something that's actually in our hands to do something about? So you'd think that climate change passes the tractability test too. Climate change is our doing, and it can also be our doing to mitigate the effects. It's in our power to prevent global warming from getting out of hand. Whereas, you know, to compare, something like a charity to prevent asteroids might be less tractable, because it's probably much more difficult to do something about stopping asteroids from hitting Earth. But the final factor, neglectedness, this is an interesting one, because this asks whether the cause in question is neglected or if a few people are looking at it. And the reason this is particularly important for EAs is that if there are very few people looking at a cause, you'd think that by tackling it yourself, you have an opportunity to make a lot of difference. 
Whereas if you donate a fiver to cancer research, for example, there's so much going into it already that your donation's probably just going to be a drop in the water and isn't likely to make that much of a difference. So your money might be better spent elsewhere. And this is what, maybe a bit controversially, makes climate change not quite as particularly appealing for EAs. The fact that climate change receives so much attention, so much research, so much funding, means that if I adopt climate change as my personal cause, unless I'm an extremely exceptional human being, I probably won't make much difference. Whereas diseases like, you know, trachoma in Africa, like we looked at earlier, are much easier to do something about. There's not much money going into preventing these kinds of tropical diseases, meaning that my money will probably go a lot further there. And so if we're concerned about, you know, how much good I can do as an individual, these neglected causes might give us some really good opportunities. So I hope that was okay to keep up with. There are whole EA organisations who focus on cost-effectiveness. There are super-intelligent economists with PhDs who devote their careers to finding the most effective causes. So it's difficult to pack the ITN framework into a two-minute overview. But broadly, if you have an opportunity to do something about a really important cause and there aren't too many people working on it already, then effective altruists will probably say, yeah, go for it, you can probably do a lot of good there. Now, as I say, there's a lot of debate within the EA community as to what causes they should be supporting, and I know that there are a fair amount out there who justifiably would defend trying to do something about climate change, to be fair. But just to give a couple of examples on causes that a lot of EAs have settled on, the most prominent one is probably, as we looked in the last episode, global poverty. And why is this? Well, when people are dying and suffering from issues relating to poverty, it's clearly an important issue. GiveWell also show that the opportunities we have to save lives through the donations to certain charities show that it is at least to some extent tractable. Even if we can't eradicate global poverty through a single donation, we can do something about the suffering of individual people. And also, there are a lot of prevalent diseases in the developing world that receive very little attention, like malaria as well. So it's neglected too. And more than that, beyond the initial screening process of the ITN framework, and that's what it is, it's a kind of screening process, charities working within global poverty can be really, really effective. As I've said, GiveWell, who are an independent charity evaluator closely associated with effective altruism, they recommend giving to the Against Malaria Foundation, who they estimate can save a life in the developing world for on average $3,000 per life saved. But not all EAs say we should focus our efforts on poverty relief. There are loads of causes out there where we can contribute loads of good. Making improvements to mental health, for example, is another area that's just starting to get a bit of traction amongst EAs. But before we move on to how we can actually make a difference in these different cause areas, there's one particular cause that I find really interesting from a philosophical perspective. So there's a particular faction of EAs who think that the most effective thing we can do the most good we can do comes from making efforts to minimise existential risks. And by existential risks, I mean things that could result in the end of human existence, things like climate change and AI as well, and probably loads of other things we haven't thought of yet. So they want to try and stop these things from happening. But their justification for this, for why this is the most effective thing they can do, is kind of mathsy. So I'll try and make it as straightforward as possible, but I do think that when it clicks, it's super compelling. So to get what they're trying to say here, first of all, when EAs talk about trying to make a difference in general, they often talk about something called expected value. And what expected value is, is essentially a tool 
that allows us to weigh up different actions against each other when the effects of these actions aren't 100% certain, when we don't quite know what's going to happen. So a really simple example would be a coin flip. So I say to you, I'll give you $10 if you get heads. Well, there's obviously a 50% chance of getting heads, 50% chance of getting tails when you flip the coin. So the expected value to you of flipping the coin would be $5. And obviously this doesn't mean you could literally expect to get $5 from flipping that coin, because either you get heads and you get $10, or you get tails and you get nothing. Instead, what we're talking about with expected value is we're talking about how worthwhile it is you flipping the coin. And because you've got a 50% chance of getting $10, a 50% chance of getting $0, overall, if we're trying to quantify how worthwhile it is for you to flip that coin, we would say it's worth $5. And thinking in this kind of way can be useful because it can help you to make rational decisions when you don't quite know, when you're not quite sure of what the outcome of your action will be. I mean, if we run with this example of flipping a coin, let's say we do this $10 game where I give you $10 if you get heads, I'll give you nothing if you get tails. But let's say in order to play this game, you've got to buy a ticket, and that ticket, the cost of playing is $3. Well, the expected value of playing is, as we've said, $5. The cost is only $3. So if you keep on playing this game, then over the long run you can expect to make money, so you should be playing that game. And as I say, this is a useful way of thinking about things. Loads of different people do it. And things like poker strategy are really based upon this way of thinking. And you can apply this to existential risk too. If you take the total amount of people on Earth, which is around about 7.5 billion people, and you find a way of reducing the chance of an existential risk from 100% certainty down to about 50%, well, the expected value of that action, therefore, would be half the people in the planet, which is about 3.75 billion lives saved. And again, obviously, as I've said, this doesn't mean we'd literally be saving 3.75 billion people while everyone else dies. Either everyone dies or everyone survives. There's no halfway point. Instead, it just gives us a way of quantifying just how worthwhile that reduction in risk is. So with that in mind, let's take an example to show why EAs think that existential risk reduction is so important. So, first of all, let's say you're a wealthy donor with $1 million to spend. As a point of comparison, if you were going to give it to the Against Malaria Foundation, running with their estimations of around about $3,000 per life saved, you could expect to save something like 333 lives with that money. So great, that's one heck of an impact to make. Or, let's think about the possibility instead that you choose to spend the money on existential risk reduction. And then let's take a risk to that life. So one example is AI, artificial intelligence. And there are loads of ways that AI could pose a threat to human life. It could be misused by a terrorist organisation, or if it became conscious, it might have its own reasons for wanting to kill us all. There's a research group based at the University of Oxford called the Future of Humanity Institute, who estimated in 2008 that the chance of AI wiping us all out by the end of the century is about 5%. So we'll run with that figure for now. So let's consider that you choose to spend that $1 million on AI safety. So to provide a bit of context, one big development in AI safety recently was another EA-backed organisation, the Open Philanthropy Project, created an AI research base in Georgetown University in Washington, DC. Now this centre is a really big deal because they're going to be performing research into AI safety that they hope will have a big effect on US policy. But this centre wasn't cheap, it cost $55 million to create. So, to get down to the maths, let's say we're putting our $1 million towards creating that centre, 
so we covered 1 55th of the cost. And let's estimate that having such a big research centre geared toward AI safety, actively shaping the policy agenda of one of the world's most influential governments, let's say it brings the risk of AI wiping us all out down by 0.01%. So the risk of us all dying from AI goes from 5% to 4.99%. And you'd think this seems pretty plausible. It's, I think, a pretty conservative estimate. So, and bear with me here, this is where it gets mathsy. We're making a 155th contribution to reducing an existential risk by 0.01%. So this means that our donation taken alone, our $1 million contribution, is responsible for reducing the chance of humanity being wiped out by AI by 0.00018 recurring percent. So on the face of this, you'd probably think... What a waste of money, I could have saved hundreds of lives, now I'm just funding some scientists playing about with robots, that's going to make absolutely no difference to the real world. But while this percentage seems really small, when you apply it to the sheer number of people on the planet, it actually becomes really significant. If the percentage by which we've reduced the chance of human extinction is, as I said, 0.00018% recurring, by timesing that number by the number of people in the Earth, 7.5 billion people, what we reach is, going back to what we said earlier, the expected value of lives that we save through that donation. And when you multiply those figures together, 7.5 billion by 0.00018 recurring percent, what you get is actually a really high number, and to be precise, 13,636. So what this means is that by reducing the chance of human extinction by that tiny amount, the expected number of lives saved is still over 10,000. And that's far more than you could have done by giving to the Against Malaria Foundation. And as I said earlier, obviously this doesn't mean that our 1 million donation is actually going to save 10,000 lives, because either AI kills us all or it doesn't. But as with expected value, the point is just that, given the sheer number of people on the planet, even such a tiny reduction in existential risk is actually really, really significant. Now obviously I pluck this number of 0.01% reduction in the risk of AI killing us all out of thin air. But the expected value of this donation is so great that even if you make the chance of us saving humanity way smaller, even if you said that creating this research base is 10 times less likely than that, and we're actually only reducing the chance of human extinction by 0.001%, the expected value of lives saved is still over a thousand, which is still a ridiculously high amount. And when you consider that we're not just saving lives today, this is a big point, we're also ensuring the existence of billions and billions of potential future lives, which obviously would never come about if AI killed us all. Lots of EAs conclude that directing our money towards minimising existential risks is by quite a long way the most effective thing we can do with our money. So just to briefly recap, up to this point we've looked at the sheer difference between the least and most effective charities, and why that means we should be deliberate about which charities we give to. We've looked at how to determine which kinds of causes might be most worthy of our attention, and we've looked at some examples of causes where we can expect to be able to contribute an awful lot of good, in particular poverty relief and existential risk reduction. But this episode today is supposed to be geared towards how we can go about actually doing this good. Within the effective altruist camp, I think there's two main ways in which people think you can go about making a difference. And this is either using your money or using your time. So to begin with using our money, because this is largely the context in which we've been looking at this so far, 
I think that giving your money is kind of the most obvious way of making a positive difference to the world. I mean, obviously this given to charity, and as we've seen, your money can go an awful long way when you're prioritising the most effective charities. And this is probably the direction you'd want to go if you're primarily concerned about global poverty. And if so, you'd probably be well served by checking out GiveWell's list of top charities, as these charities have the strongest evidence showing how much bang you can get for your buck. Last week we talked about the Against Malaria Foundation, who a lot of EAs support. But another one that I think is worth a mention is Give Directly. I know that there are a lot of people who for good reason aren't entirely comfortable giving loads of their money to charities, and essentially trusting that their money is going to go to the right people, and won't be used in the kinds of ways that Oxfam did in Haiti, for example, while supporting corrupt governments. For those of you who have these kinds of thoughts, Give Directly are a fantastic charity, as I say, recommended by Give Well, because they actually facilitate direct cash transfers to low-income families in sub-Saharan Africa, who are able to use this money to make investments that allow them to continue generating money in the long term, which can ultimately help pull them out of poverty. But of course, charities aren't the only way to go. You might also want to support research, perhaps organisations like GiveWell who perform research into charities themselves. But there are also EA organisations out there who perform research into, as I say, things like existential risk reduction as well. But as we alluded to a little bit last episode, wherever you might want to give your money, there's also a big question about how much we should be given to charity that has yet to be answered. Ultimately, there's no uniform answer amongst DAs as to how much you should be giving. I mean, essentially, the more you give, the better. No matter how much you give, technically it would always be better if you gave more, because the people most in need are much more likely to be in need of your money than yourself until you have almost nothing left yourself. But at the same time, I think the most EAs recognise that that advice, give as much as you can until you have nothing left, isn't really very good advice. I mean, frankly, not many people would actually do that. It's much easier to convince somebody to give $10 a month than to give almost all of their income. And even if they did give that much for a short period of time, it's probably very likely that they would burn out really quickly. They wouldn't be able to keep it up for long and they'd end up giving nothing at all. There are some EAs out there, I think the Oxford philosophers Toby Ord and Will McCaskill are among them, who have pledged to give everything that they earn above a certain amount, something like everything above 18 or 20k a year to charity. Their thinking is that that's all they need to get by in relative comfort, and spending any more than that on themselves would be indulgence. In their eyes, probably an inexcusable indulgence, given the extent of suffering in the world, and the opportunities that they have to do something about it. Amongst other effective altruists, a lot of them defend giving something like 10% of their income to charity. The thought here being that 10% is a substantial amount, but it's also manageable, so you'll likely be able to keep it up in the long term. But how much you choose to give is, I'm sure, a really personal decision. It depends on so many factors, and it definitely depends on how well off you are yourself. I mean, I'd never recommend a single parent with five children, no savings and a minimum wage job to devote 10% of their income to charity, because they'll really need that money themselves. But on the other hand, I'm definitely of the opinion that if, say, Jeff Bezos pledged to donate 10% of his wealth to charity, that he'd in actual fact not be doing nearly enough. I mean, even if he took 50% of Jeff Bezos' wealth away, he'd still have over $50 billion, and I can't see any reasonable justification to keep more than that for yourself, when there are countless people dying because they don't have the food or shelter to literally survive another day. But at the end of the day, as I say, however much you choose has to be sustainable. 
There's quite a prominent effective altruist out there, Julia Wise, who once said that she was suffering with this kind of dilemma, thinking that every dollar she spent on herself is essentially taken out of the hands of someone who needed it way more. Every time Julia bought an ice cream, she found herself asking, do I need this ice cream as much as a woman on the other side of the world needs the money to get her children vaccinated? But as I say, this isn't a healthy way of thinking, and Julia said she ran the risk of burnout, until she was brave enough to say to herself, you know what, ice cream is actually really important to my happiness. And she did the same thing when she was thinking whether or not to have children. Children are essentially a really expensive investment, and there was far more money there that could have otherwise gone to the developing world. But Julia thought, well if I'm going to have any kind of a satisfying life, it's really important to me that I have children. But at the same time, Julia is an effective altruist, and she pledges around 30-50% to 50 of her income each year to charity, and there's no denying that that's a big commitment. I think the thought here is a really important one, and it's worth bearing in mind that having satisfying and meaningful lives is a kind of prerequisite to giving and being effectively altruistic. We're not going to be motivated to give if there's nothing in it for us. We are human after all, and humans aren't perfect. So in actual fact, it might actually help us be as effective as possible in the long term if we do indulge just a little bit, at least to a reasonable amount, and maybe give the excess to those who need it more. But even once we've given however much we want to give to effective charities, that doesn't have to be the entirety of the impact that our money can actually do. In actual fact, there's good reasons to think that being public with your donations, telling other people what you're doing, can actually encourage other people to do the same, and then your donations end up having this kind of multiplier effect as more and more people give. I know that saying this might make people feel a bit icky. We live in a society where flaunting how much you're giving to charity will definitely make some people label you as self-indulgent and inauthentic. I think there's a thought that a true donation that's really come from the right place will be made anonymously, because if you go around telling everyone, you only did it so that you look like a good person. I mean, just imagine the replies Justin Bieber would get to a tweet announcing that he was giving $10 million to charity. I don't think it'd be pretty. And I know that Prince Harry, for example, has got a lot of similar judgments from people lately in response to his and Meghan Markle's activism, that he's only doing it for the attention. And these kinds of taboos about money, I think, are pretty common. I'm sure there aren't too many listeners who'd feel comfortable discussing their salary or bonuses with co-workers, and there's a kind of norm that says discussing your pay with co-workers is tacky and you shouldn't do it. But there's definitely grounds on which to say that these norms are harmful. I mean, the workplace one is an obvious example. An employer who forbids their employees from discussing salary makes it easy for them to underpay certain workers, knowing they'll never find out that their co-workers, on the same level of the hierarchy who don't work as hard, get paid more just because they're better at negotiating their salary. And I do think that the same kind of thing applies to charitable giving. If we follow this norm that society gives us, that we should be keeping our charitable giving to ourselves, how can we ever create a norm within society of making charitable giving become an integral part of people's lifestyles? And these kinds of norms really can encourage people to give more. The philosopher who we looked at last week, Peter Singer, gives a couple of really interesting examples in his book, The Life You Can Save. And there's one particularly relevant example. An American radio show was running a funding drive where they were encouraging their listeners to give some money to charity. Now, sometimes, as part of this campaign, they'd have callers call up the show and say how much they gave. And they realised, the people who'd run this study, that the listeners to the show 
gave a higher amount overall when the callers to the show said that they'd given more. Whereas when the caller featured on the show said they'd given less, the listeners overall would give less too. So again, it goes to show that if you choose to start giving some money to charity, your money isn't the only part of the good you can do. If you encourage others to join in the right way, the amount of money that you end up moving over to effective charities could be far more than the money that you have to donate yourself. And then, of course, like I said earlier, giving money is just one way that effective altruists think we can make a difference to the world. Anyone who's actively involved with any charity in their local area will know that while no charity can get by without money, nor can they get by without people there to help run the charity. If we want to make the biggest difference we can, we need to know how to use our time effectively, not just our money. But the way the EAs suggest that we spend our time might not be quite what you'd expect. When deciding where to volunteer or where to work, EAs often say that what's really important to bear in mind is what they call the counterfactual. And now what this means, the counterfactual, is basically just considering what would have happened otherwise, what would have happened if I didn't do it. So in terms of this podcast, if I choose not to publish this particular episode, the counterfactual would be a world with one less podcast episode on effective altruism. That seems pretty simple. But some surprising conclusions pop up when we consider the counterfactual when it comes to working for charity. So let's take a job that would seem, on the face of it, an A-star job for an effective altruist. Maybe you've been to university, studied events management, got a few years of work experience as well, and you get a job as a fundraising manager for the Against Malaria Foundation. You're basically responsible for organising fundraising campaigns and finding as many donations as possible for one of the world's most effective charities. Now, it's worth me pointing out that, to be fair, this probably is a pretty good job to have if you want to make a difference. I'm sure you can do a lot more with it than, say, a job in middle management and retail. But the impact you can make does seem a little bit more muted when you consider the counterfactual. If you imagine the world where you rejected this job, what would that world look like? Well, unlike the world where I don't release this podcast episode, there's still going to be another fundraising manager. Presumably the Against Malaria Foundation would just hire the next best candidate for the job. Maybe they've just got a little bit less work experience than you. But bear in mind that a fundraising manager job for the Against Malaria Foundation is probably a really competitive job to get. So the next person is probably going to be almost as good as you, almost as effective. So as counterintuitive as it might seem, you accepting the fundraising job will probably make very little impact, because whatever impact you can make, somebody else would probably do anyway. Whereas on the other hand, consider being a pretty high up manager in a London bank, earning a few hundred thousand pounds a year. You don't interact with any customers, you don't tangibly improve anyone's life through your work, you'd imagine that this job probably wouldn't be at the top of the list of effective jobs. Well, actually, there might be good reason to think that you could use this job to really ensure that you make a big difference compared with the counterfactual. Working for a bank, you put yourself in a position where you can make massive donations every year to effective charities. If you're on a salary of, say, $250,000 a year, I think there's every reason to think that you could give about $100,000 a year. And if so, going by this standard of around about $3,000 per life saved that we talked about earlier, through the most cost-effective charities, you could save around 33 lives per year. And what does the counterfactual look like? What would happen if you didn't take the job? Well, chances are someone almost as good as you would take the job, but almost certainly they wouldn't be given their salary to charity. So in actual fact, you might actually be able to do a lot more good by being a bank manager, saving 33 lives a year that otherwise wouldn't have been saved, 
rather than fundraising for an effective charity and probably not making too much of a difference that wouldn't have been made either way. Now, you can take this argument to an extreme. If you take the idea of working in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II, the idea that this would be a good career move would sound like a disgusting thing to say. But you could use the EA logic to argue that, well, the next person who'd be offered the job would probably be an anti-Semite and cause a lot of innocent deaths. So if you take the job instead, you can ensure that far less people are killed or put through suffering than would have been otherwise. So in that strange sense, you might want to say, if you do it in the right way and for the right reasons, you can make a really big positive difference by taking this job. Now, to be clear, I know that EAs by and large would not want to take the argument this far. In actual fact, I know that a lot of EAs would be hesitant to even suggest that you go for the whole bank manager, working so you can earn more so you can give more career path. With both a concentration camp and the earning to give job, you might not feel particularly motivated to keep it up in the long term, and both are kind of a hard sell to those who aren't already sold by the ideas of effective altruism. It doesn't make it sound like a particularly attractive philosophy. So to provide career advice to young, budding, effective altruists who want to make a positive difference with their career, they've actually set up a fantastic organisation called 80,000 Hours. The name 80,000 Hours comes from the amount of time that the typical person spends working throughout their lifetime. I mean, you have 80,000 hours, the thought being that that's a massive amount of time and a huge potential to use it to make some kind of real positive difference. And what the organisation 80,000 Hours do is they perform lots of really insightful research into quite what those most effective career paths might be, and they provide advice to those who need a bit of help. Back in their early days, I think 80,000 Hours tried to push this idea of earning to give a lot more. But now I think they emphasise much more that it's just one option out of loads of really effective career paths. One they say is a really good idea, if you have talent in that area, is research. Without top quality researchers, companies like GiveWell wouldn't be able to divert donations to the most effective charities. Organisations like 80,000 Hours themselves wouldn't be able to publish this kind of advice about how to best spend our careers. And organisations like the Future of Humanity Institute wouldn't be able to identify the most pressing existential risks and find the best strategies of avoiding them. And beyond research, I think that going into politics to make a difference and also effective altruism outreach, you know, getting people involved in EA, are seen as pretty effective as well. You might want to say that the counterfactual with these jobs isn't massively different, that another equally capable researcher could just take your place, but I think the thought is that even by being just marginally more intelligent or hardworking or productive, a researcher at an organisation like this, or a politician, could actually make a huge difference because the stakes they're working with are so high. I mean, if a marginally less proficient GiveWell researcher was hired, and let's say they made a mistake in estimating the cost-effectiveness of the Against the Malaria Foundation, and GiveWell didn't recommend them as a top charity, you know, they could end up receiving less donations from EAs and miss the opportunity to save countless lives. And then, of course, outside of your career, if you were to go off and use your own initiative to create an effective charity or campaign for more people to do their bit and make a difference too, of course, these could be hugely impactful things that wouldn't be done otherwise. So, that's about all I have to say about how effective altruists recommend we use our time and money to make a positive difference to the world. If any of you are interested in the kinds of thoughts in this episode, you can find career advice on www.80,000hours.org. And 80,000 Hours also have an awesome podcast that goes into way more detail about these kinds of ideas. 
You can find information about Effective Charities on www.givewell.org or if you just want to find out more about effective altruism and maybe get involved with the community, you can visit the forum on forum.effectivealtruism.org and if you're a Facebook user, there's a large and active Effective Altruism Facebook group with loads of local groups and other groups focused on the kind of niche parts and communities within Effective Altruism as well. I'll be back next month the first Monday of November on the 4th, with an episode on the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. If you enjoyed the episode on Camus, or episode 7 on freedom, you might find this one a good one. Until then, you can follow Searching For It on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find the show on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it, if you'd like to pledge your support to the show. And if you have a moment, please do leave a quick rating and review on your podcasting app. And I'll see you in November. Thank you.